the rest of us, if you want to follow along in your swords, um, we're going to re be reading from Genesis chapter 26, verses 1 to 33. Now there was a famine in the land, and beside the former famine that, we, that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands. And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give you and give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of that place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister. For he feared to say, My wife, thinking, lest the men of this place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called to Isaac and said, Behold, she is your wife. How then could you say, She is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife will surely put, be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in that same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that one also, so he named it Setna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it, so he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and, shall be, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built 
an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. Now you are, the, you are now the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank, and in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. How many of you are, are 65 or older? Darla Rognes was the most confident hand in the entire room. There's a woman with no shame or fear. <clears throat> the, the U.S. Census Bureau, I, I ask for this reason, projects that by 2035, adults 65 and older in this country are going to outnumber children. For the first time in U.S. history. And with that demographic shift comes increased attention to different age-related challenges, including memory loss. And the National Institute of Aging is here to help, um, and they have published some comforting, or depending on your point of view, less than comforting, <laughs> observations about age-related changes in memory. Okay? Listen to this. Forgetfulness can be a normal part of aging. Did somebody say amen? Josh, was that you? <laughs> it's true. It's true. As people get older, changes occur in all parts of the body, including the brain. As a result, some people may notice that it takes longer to learn new things. They don't remember information as well as they did, or they lose things, like their glasses. This is our tax dollars at work. They are usually signs of mild forgetfulness, so don't, so don't freak out. Symptoms of normal aging include, listen, making a bad decision once in a while, missing a monthly payment, forgetting which day it is and remembering later, sometimes forgetting which word to use, and losing things from time to time. How many of you can relate to one or more of those challenges? <laughs> yeah, a lot of people under 65. Thank you, Emma Sturgeon. Absolutely. I don't think, church, that those challenges, forgetfulness, is unique to old age. It's not. Okay? Example. Even young people forget things. How many of you young people have studied really hard for a test, you got an A, and then seven days later, you can't remember a single answer on that exam. Yeah, exactly. You passed it by short-term memory, and then you deliberately forgot everything. I've done that. 
I think forgetfulness is a human problem, not just an old person's problem. It's a human weakness. It's, it is, if you would, an, an inescapable part of doing life in a fallen world with broken bodies, broken minds. But you know what else forgetfulness is? It's something that the God of this world has never once experienced. Think about that. Psalm 102, verse 25, Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same. And your years have no end. So think about that. God's memory doesn't fade because God doesn't change. That's what the psalmist is saying. From eternity past, he has, he has known all things, and there will never be a time when his knowledge slips or weakens or recedes. That's what he's saying. Therefore, when God makes a promise, he remembers his promise. And when he remembers his promise, he keeps his promise. And when he keeps his promise, he protects his promise. And so Psalm 102 concludes with great joy, the children of your servants shall dwell secure. That's the good news that comes our way because God doesn't have a forgetting problem. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Church, that's what Genesis 26 is all about, okay? In a nutshell, it confronts our forgetful hearts with the God who forgets nothing. We need to be confronted by that. Our hearts that are prone to forget all kinds of things, including God things, need to be confronted by the word of God who forgets nothing. And it reminds us, more than anything else, that God always does what he says he will do always does what he says he will do, which means he's preeminently worthy of obedient trust. He forgets nothing, remembers everything, and therefore, he always does what he says he will do. And because of that, he's preeminently worthy of your trust. I'm done. <laughs> That's the sermon, okay? I, I, I give you that in a nutshell. Short version for a reason, so that you, as we go through all this, don't lose sight of the big picture, okay? That's the big picture. And Genesis 26 makes that point by, by giving us, as it were, a, a front row seat on what I like to call a changing of the guard. It's a proverbial changing of the guard, because in the previous chapter, Genesis 25, Abraham died. We heard that last week when Rick from Grace Bible was preaching. So grateful for that sermon. And Abraham is the one to whom God swore back in Genesis 22, 16. Listen, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, I will surely bless you. He's talking to Abraham. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because 
you have obeyed my voice. And so now the question on the heels of that, when you get to Genesis 26, is what? Will those multi-generational promises and blessings that God has promised to Abraham, are those great gifts going to be transferred to the second generation, to Isaac? Or are they not? That's the lingering question. In other words, will God do what he says he will do? You ever had that question in your mind? You ever had somebody else come and try to comfort you by reading something from God's word and and you sit there and there's a big part of you that's not entirely convinced that's true? It's not a unique question to Genesis 26. It's a human question. Will God do what he says he will do? And I won't leave you in suspense. The answer from this chapter is yes. It's always been yes, or always will be yes. God's worthy of obedient trust because he always does what he says he will do. And so what we're going to do is look at different reasons that's the case. How do we know that God always does what he says he will do? And therefore, is worthy of trust. Well, he gives us reasons. Here's the first one. Point one, because the Lord remembers his covenant promises. He remembers his covenant promises. So, so quick background here. When, when a famine arises in the land, Isaac couldn't go to Kroger. <laughs> he had to leave. He had to find food. So verse 1, what does he do? He goes to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now whether this is the same Abimelech that Abraham had some interesting interactions with back in chapter 20 and 21 We can't tell for sure, okay? It could be the same guy. It could be a descendant by the same name. All we know is that by traveling to Gerar, Isaac is walking in his father's footsteps. He's going where his father went. And in Gerar, the Lord confronts him with a simple command. Look at verse 2. Hard to get this wrong. Do not go down to Egypt. Isaac, don't go down to Egypt. On one level, it would make a lot of sense for Isaac to do that. Because typically in famines in ancient Near East, there was always food to be found in Egypt. And it's also what his dad did when he experienced the famine back in Genesis 12. But but notice this, the Lord doesn't want Isaac to follow his own intuition or his dad's example. Neither one of those. What, What does the Lord want Isaac to do? He wants him to follow the Lord. Not his own intuition, not his dad's example. Follow the Lord. Verse 2, dwell in the land, Isaac, of which I shall tell you. Does that sound familiar to you, church? It should. Because in Genesis 12, verse 1, what does God tell his father Abraham? Go to the land that I will show you, Isaac. And by the way, that's the exact same command Jesus gives to every one of us today. Right? Don't don't go down to Egypt. Don't stop doing what seems good to you. Turn away from that and follow me. Trust me. Let let me call the shots in your life. It's not new. It's what God's been saying from the very beginning. Look at verse 3. So here's what you need to do, Isaac. Sojourn in this land in Gerar, and I will be with you and will bless you. So God doesn't just say, Isaac, do it because 
Sojourn here for two reasons. What are the reasons? He promises Isaac the gift of his presence and the gift of his favor. I will be with you. I will bless you. Now, why would God do that? Why would he promise Isaac his presence and his favor? Two reasons. First, because of God's unchangeable purpose. What does he say? For to you and to your offspring, I will give all these lands. That's God's unchangeable purpose that's causing him to lavish Isaac with his presence and his favor. Second, God's unchangeable word. What's he say next? And I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham, your father. So so you've got two things that are compelling the Lord of the universe to lavish his presence and his favor on second generation Isaac. What is it? God's unchangeable purpose, God's unchangeable word. It's compelling the Lord. It's driving the Lord. And because God remembers his purpose in his word, what does he say is going to happen? Look at verse 4. Isaac, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Do you know what that is? That is nearly word for word what God told his dad. All the way back in Genesis 22. But listen, friends. The point, the point is not that God's promising to do to Isaac the same things God promised to do to Abraham. That's not the point, okay? The point is that God remembers the promise he made to Abraham and therefore he is going to be good to Isaac. That's the point, okay? So so listen carefully here because we really need to get this straight. Does Isaac have to obey God's word? in order to experience God's blessing? Yes, absolutely. He has to turn away from Egypt and choose to walk in the obedience of faith. Yes. Does that mean that the fulfillment of God's blessing in his life ultimately rests on Isaac's faithfulness? No, no. Look at verse five. We're going to linger here. This is so important. Verse 5. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. What, what do we expect verse 5 to say? Here's what I expected verse 5 to say. Okay, I expected it to say something like this. In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed if you obey my voice. Isaac. And if you, Isaac, keep my charge, why do we expect God to say that? Well, I would argue it's because we're Americans. (laughs) Okay? And we instinctively think in individualistic terms. We default to that. It's all about me and what I'm doing. Church, please hear this. That is not the way God works. It's not the way God works, okay? He relates to us as individuals, but he doesn't relate to us on individualistic terms. How does he relate to us? He relates to us as he related to Isaac in covenantal terms. Not individualistic terms. He relates to you as an individual, but not on individualistic terms. He relates to you on covenantal terms. Now, that's a big word. So before I lose your attention, What does that mean? What do I mean by that? 
Here's the part we have to be careful, okay? I mean that God's commitment to bless Isaac was guaranteed by something other than Isaac. God's commitment to bless Isaac was guaranteed by something other than Isaac, okay? It was guaranteed by God's covenant with Abraham. So what did God say to Abraham? He promised to give Abraham and his descendants land, offspring, and abundant blessing. Why? Because Abraham chose to trust and obey the Lord. That's why. The the Lord even guaranteed it with an oath. Back in Genesis 22, indicating that that God's faithfulness, not Abraham's, would, would ultimately bring the promises to pass. Okay, that's what a covenant is. It's oath-bound promises or commitments. That's a covenant. Whenever you see that, think oath-bound promise or commitment, okay? So, Abraham's son Isaac, just said a minute ago, must likewise choose to trust and obey the Lord. He has to. He has to embrace the obedience of faith. But please hear this, okay? The blessing God promises he will receive as a result reflects neither the measure of his obedience nor the strength of his faith. It reflects his relationship to Abraham. It's his status, Isaac's status, as Abraham's chosen son. His his connection to Abraham as as his covenant head, his covenant representative that, that ultimately secures the favor of God on Isaac's life. It's that connection, that relationship. That's the whole point of verse 5. Namely, that God's blessing isn't coming Isaac's way because of Isaac. God's blessing is coming Isaac's way because of Abraham and because God remembers the promise that he made to Abraham. That's so important. Why? Because when God makes a covenant promise, what does he do? He remembers his covenant promise. When he makes it, he remembers it. Psalm 105, verse 8. He remembers. Think of it this way. God God never has to join the AARP. He remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. Friends, the good news that I have for you this morning is that God hasn't stopped making and remembering covenant promises. He hasn't stopped doing that, okay? Only he holds out to us covenant promises that are far superior to the promises Isaac received because of Abraham's obedience. To to those who are willing to follow God today, by faith, God holds out covenant promises that are secure because of Jesus Christ's obedience. And where Abraham was, was not completely faithful, The eternal son of God, both in his life and in his death, was perfectly faithful. Hebrews 8 verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. Well, I read that and here's what I think. What could possibly be better than, how about lots of offspring, lots of land, lots of money, lots of power, lots of blessing? I mean, that's sweet. Better than that? What, what could be better than that? 
Well, friends, there is something far, far better than that. And it's the one thing that has to be overcome if we're going to experience the eternal joy of God's presence and favor. What's that? Hebrews 8 verse 12. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities. And I will remember their sins no more. I said earlier that God, what? He knows everything and he forgets nothing. But do you know, brother or sister, that there is something that if you are in Christ Jesus, God chooses to never remember? to never recall before his active conscience, to never fixate upon or bring back into mind. He doesn't forget it, but he never remembers it. You know what that is? It's your sin. The God who forgets nothing, if you're in Christ, never remembers your sin. Why not? Because he always remembers Christ. Hebrews 10 verse 12, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So so what's that mean for you, fearful saint? Well, it means this, okay? When God sees your sins, he remembers Christ. When God sees your failures, he remembers Christ. Christ who died to take away the guilt of all your sin. Christ who lived to make you forever welcome in the presence of your heavenly father. It's it's because of Jesus that God is with you. It's because of Jesus that God is for you. And it's because of Jesus that you have now been given as God's child a mission to go and tell the world of all the blessing that is waiting for them in him. It's because of Jesus. And think about this. God can no more forget his covenant promises to you than he can forget the infinite worth of his beloved son. He can't do that. He won't fail to remember Christ. And therefore, he will not fail to remember all who are found in him. So what do we do? We rejoice with the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. In Jesus Christ. So, remember the big idea. How do we know God always does what he says he will do? Reason one, God remembers his covenant promises. But not because you're something worth remembering, but because Jesus is. He remembers Christ. Don't don't wake up tomorrow, Christian, and ask yourself, look in the mirror, droopy eyes, I wonder if I'm worth remembering today. (laughs) You're not. (laughs) You're not. But guess who is? Jesus is. And if you're in Christ, God will never forget his covenant promises to you. That's the first reason. Thank you, Lord, for that. Reason two. Point two, the Lord keeps his covenant promises. How do we know he always does what he says he will do? He remembers his covenant promises. Second, he keeps his covenant promises. So look back at verse 6. In response to, to God's lavish promises, what does Isaac do? He chooses obedience, the obedience of faith. 
Verse 6, so he settled in Gerar. He made the right choice. And from that climactic moment onward, he never looked back. He never doubted God's word. He never struggled with unbelief. It was onward and upward to glory. <laughs> not quite. And in fact, not at all. Not at all, okay? His faith was genuine. His obedience was real. But, but listen to this. What happened next proved once again that God's entire program of blessing didn't rest on the faithfulness of Isaac, but on the faithfulness of God. <laughs> That's what happens next, okay? Because what, what goes on here? Next few verses. Isaac succumbs in Gerar to what? The exact same sin his dad fell into. The same thing. He succumbed to fear. So instead of trusting God to protect his life, what did he do? He lied. He deceived. He, he tried to manage the situation and make it work out the way he wanted it to work out through human cunning instead of trusting the Lord. That's what he did. And it was immediately on the heels of God personally appearing to him and saying, I am with you. I will bless you. Cool. I don't think I'm going to trust you. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> oh, we do that, right? We do that. Isaac chose to sin. And tell the men of Gerar that Rebekah was his sister, when in reality Rebekah was his wife. And eventually Abimelech catches him expressing his affection to Rebekah, and, and the truth comes out. Look at verse 10. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. I think this entire situation, this entire scandal, friends, it it affords two warnings and a great consolation. Here's the first warning. First, it warns us of the corporate consequences of sin. Whenever you choose to trust yourself instead of trusting the Lord, this is inevitable. You will inevitably endanger not just yourself, but everybody around you. What does the voice of sin whisper to us? It says, if you do this that you know is wrong, it's okay because nobody will get hurt. Nobody will get hurt. If somebody gets hurt, it'll just be you. And that's not likely because you're smart. So it's okay. It's okay. Abimelech got it right. Rebecca could easily have been violated, threatening the fulfillment of God's promised offspring. So, so Isaac's deception undoubtedly seemed wise to him in the moment, but in reality, it left him and everybody around him vulnerable to sin. So it warns us that there are corporate consequences to sin. When, when you, as a member of this church, stumble and fall, it hurts the body of Jesus Christ. It's not just you off in a corner. Once God has added you to the body, your choices affect all of us and our collective witness to the truth of the gospel. 
So there's a warning here. There are corporate consequences to sin. Here's the second warning, okay? Isaac's experience warns us of the common nature of sin. The common nature. What well does the Apostle Paul say? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not what? Common to man. Okay, now when I first read this story this week, I was like, wait a minute. Didn't we preach this before? Oh, yeah. And in fact... Abraham didn't do this, she's my sister, not my wife. Ha ha, just kidding. Business once. He did it twice. First with Pharaoh in Egypt and then with Abimelech and Gerar. So, so as I'm reading this, it's hard to read it and not think, Isaac, are you serious? <laughs> did you learn anything from your dad's experience? I mean, come on, Isaac, stop being stupid. Do you realize, we have to realize, friends, that insanity lies at the core of every sin? Every sin. I don't care if it's the first time, the tenth time. Insanity lies at the core of that. And when we see a brother or sister stumble and fall, what do we tend to do? What do we tend to do? We tend, naturally, to self-righteously congratulate ourselves. Thank you, God, that I am not like other men. And then we get on social media and trash them because we feel better about ourselves. What, what, what does the humility of wisdom do instead of that? When we see somebody else stumble and fall, it turns to careful self-examination. And it endeavors to take heed lest we stumble into the same trap. That's what the humility of wisdom does. So there are two warnings. Remember the corporate consequences. Remember the common nature. But here's the consolation and really the main point, okay? Lest we miss it, this is the main point. God kept his promises even though Isaac failed to keep God's word. Did you hear that? God kept his promise even though Isaac failed to keep God's word. So how does this happen? Well, first, God does it through Abimelech's decree in verse 11. What's he say? Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Do you know that's almost an exact echo of what God told his father Abraham back in Genesis 12 verse 3. Him who dishonors you, I will curse. So what's God doing? He's using Isaac's sin and the decree of a self-protective pagan king to get his sovereign purpose fulfilled. That's crazy. <laughs> that's amazing, okay? But, but that's just the start. Look at verse 12. We need to see this. What, what does God do for Isaac immediately after he falls into sin? And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Say what? <laughs> the Lord blessed him. time out. <laughs> that doesn't mean God is blessing him for sinning. What does it mean? It means that God is keeping his promise to Isaac because of who God is, not because of who Isaac is. 
That's so significant, friends. It's living proof that where sin increases, grace abounds all the more. Because what was Isaac basically doing by lying about Rebekah? He was basically saying, Lord, thank you for all those cool promises, but I don't think I'm going to trust you anymore right now. That's what he was doing. So, so how did God respond? Well, he pours out more blessing on Isaac than he possibly could have imagined. Why does God do that? Why does God do that? Because he doesn't keep his covenant promises because we are faithful. He keeps his covenant promises because God is good. There's a huge difference to that, friends. Huge difference. So look at verse 13. Lest we get derailed here by some kind of prosperity gospel, all right? Does the fact that God's blessing comes to Isaac in the form of material prosperity mean that if you are poor right now, if you're struggling to make ends meet right now, you are not blessed by God? That's nonsense, okay? And I preached a whole sermon on that issue sometime early September called The God-Centered Nature of Divine Blessing. So if you missed that, go back and listen to it. The bottom line is, Wealth and prosperity can be a sign of God's blessing, but not necessarily. Sometimes it's a sign of God's judgment. It can dull us to eternal realities, okay? But in this case, what's clear? Isaac's wealth is an unmistakable sign of God's unmerited favor on his life. He didn't earn that. God poured it out right after he sinned because he's a gracious God. The main point is God's keeping his covenant promise. So look, look at verse 3. What's God say? I will bless you. Now what do we read in verse 12? The Lord blessed him. Promise, I will bless you. What happens right after that? I trust you, but not enough to tell the truth. So what does God do? Well, forget the promise then, Isaac best of luck on your own. No, he pours out mercy and kindness and favor because of who God is. In other words, Isaac's sin couldn't stop God from fulfilling his covenant promises. That's the point. God doesn't just remember his covenant promises. He keeps his covenant promises. That's the second reason we know he's going to do what he says he will do. And our sin can't stop him. Here's the third reason. The Lord doesn't just remember or keep. He protects his covenant promises. He protects them. So where do we see this? Well, suffice it to say, God's blessing on Isaac makes the Philistines around him what? Crazy jealous. Really jealous. Okay, so they send him away. Look at verse 16. Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Get out of here, Isaac. You're a threat. Now, we know that's not a new sentiment. Why? Because in verse 15, what have the Philistines already done? Well, they reneged on the promise that Abimelech made Abraham decades earlier. What was that promise? You do good to me and my descendants, my descendants will do good to you. Always. Let's shake on it. They didn't keep that. As soon as Abraham died, what did the Philistines do? They caved in and filled every single well the man had ever dug. They were attacking his, his livelihood. They were creating an existential threat for Isaac. But, but they weren't just threatening his life. They were undoing the visible blessings of God in his life. I mean, if you're Isaac, it had to, had to feel like 
you're not just threatening my survival, but it feels like you're, you're backspacing with a, a wicked wah kind of laugh. Every good thing God was working in my life. You're taking it all away. Wonder if you've ever been there, friend. Have you ever felt like people at work were at were at home, or even at church, that, that once promised to do good to you are now stabbing you in the back at every turn, effectively undoing everything good you thought God was doing in your life. If you felt that, listen carefully, okay? Every time Isaac's servants dug another well, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled and contended with him over the rights to the water, right? So he digs another and another until finally in verse 22, he digs a well that they are willing to let him use. And what's Isaac say? For now the Lord has made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. What's Isaac recognizing? He's recognizing that where persecution increased, provision increased all the more. That where the Philistines' persecution abounded, God's provision abounded. The Lord was faithful when the Philistines were unfaithful. He he protected his covenant promise. But that didn't mean Isaac's struggle was over. And I want to linger on this, okay? Because the greatest battle we face, church, is never the sin around us. You know what it is? It's always the sin inside of us. That's the big battle. And and with Isaac's case, what was the temptation? It was the temptation to respond to all this external hostility by giving into fear. Just like he did back in Gerar. If if he's going to experience God's blessings, he has to what? He has to walk in the obedience of faith. So, the Lord protects the fulfillment of his covenant promises in a physical sense by giving Isaac a well that he and his family can live off of. And he protects the fulfillment of his covenant blessings in a spiritual sense by addressing the fear in Isaac's heart. Because ultimately, that fear is the biggest danger. Why? Because that fear, left unaddressed and followed to its ultimate end, would inevitably lead Isaac away from following the Lord. So God addresses his fear. God speaks to his fear. Look at verse 24. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you, and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. That that can go by so quickly that, that we can miss the significance of what God's doing. I think if we slow down, friends, We'll see here that the Lord is addressing Isaac's fear and our own by asking and answering five questions about himself. I want to conclude with this because this is how God cares for us in the midst of our own fear. When you and I are tempted to doubt that God might not do what he said he will do. So what's the first question that God answers? It's who. Okay? Who are you? Do you realize that the most important reality in every situation you ever find yourself is not what people are saying or doing, but who God is? Some of you missed that. (laughs) 
Do you realize the most important reality in every situation you find yourself is never what people are saying or doing, but who God is? It's always who God is. Look at verse 24. I am the God of Abraham, your father. He doesn't start with, oh, Isaac, I'm so sorry you're afraid. There, there. He gets in his face. Isaac, I am the God of Abraham, your father. He's he's asserting his divine identity. He's, He's confronting Isaac with the record of his faithfulness. He's reminding Isaac, listen, pal, I've been at work in your family's life for decades. Your existence is the fruit of a miracle. I'm the God of Abraham, your father. It's who I am. I'm a covenant-keeping, faithful God. Isaac, if we're going to talk about your fear, let's not start with your fear or the Philistines. Let's start with me. I'm God. Here's the second question. Okay? Then where are you, Lord? Where are you? What does the Lord say? Look back at verse 24. Fear not, Why? For I am with you. I'm with you. I'm not just God of Abraham, your father, with an impeccable track record of faithfulness that you should not doubt and trust and believe. But lest you feel like that's all just out there in religious church space where the pastors believe and no one else does, (laughs) Isaac, I'm with you. I'm near to you. There are so many times, friends, in our battle against fear where it feels like our life is just utter darkness, right? Psalm 88, basement of the Psalms. I I don't feel your presence anywhere, God. When you're in that place, do you know what you need the Lord to do? We need the Lord to remind us that despite what we are feeling, he is a God who is with us. He's with us. I'm with you. I may feel far off, but I'm not far off. I'm near. I'm with you. Remember this, fearful saint. Your conscious awareness of God's presence does not determine whether God is present. God is present because of who God is not because of what you feel. God is present because he is always with those who are in Christ Jesus, not because of what you feel. Who is he? I'm God Almighty, the faithful God who keeps covenant to your dad. Where are you? I'm with you. I'm near to you. The third question is what? If you're near God, what in the world are you doing? What's it feel like when we're afraid? It feels like God's doing nothing, that he's MIA. So what does the Lord say? Look back at verse 24. Fear not, for I am with you. Okay, what are you doing? I will bless you. I'm blessing you. You're what? I'm blessing you. In just a few minutes, we're going to sing one of my favorite hymns. And the third stanza says this. When through the deep waters I call you to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you your troubles to bless and sanctify to you your deepest distress. What does that mean? What, what, is, what does sanctify to you your deepest distress mean? Well, in essence, it means this. 
It means God is using the very hardest thing you are going through right now, your deepest distress, to do good to you. He's using the greatest evils ever committed against you that are real evils to bring his good purposes to pass in your life. Whereas he said to Joseph at the end of the book, what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Here's the fourth question. How? How are you going to do that, Lord? I'm willing to believe you're going to work all things for good. So how are you going to do that? Because right now when I'm looking at this and feeling afraid, I don't see how any of this can work out for good. Where does he direct Isaac? Back to verse 24. He directs him to his mighty power. What's he say? I will multiply your offspring. I will multiply your offspring. So so in the context of Isaac's birth to a 90-year-old barren woman, what does that mean? It's it's God's way of reminding Isaac That his existence is a miracle of grace and that God has all the power he needs to bring all of his promises to pass. He's pointing Isaac back to his mighty power. Isaac, you can trust me because my power is unlimited. So trust me because of who I am. Trust me because I'm with you. Trust me because I'm for you. Trust me because I'm mighty to save. I'm a powerful God, Isaac. But we can hear all that. We can hear all of that. And there remains a final question. Lord, why do I know that all of that is true for me? Not just true in general or true for every other Christian raising their hands and closing their eyes around me. We'll look back at verse 24. We'll end with this. Chapter 26. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. How does God answer the why question in your life today, friend? He doesn't say, I will surely do it. I will surely fulfill all my promises for my servant Abraham's sake. He says, Christian, I will fulfill all my promises for my servant Jesus' sake. Right? Which brings us right back to where we started. To God keeps his promises. God remembers his promises. God protects his promises for the sake of the one to whom we have been indissolubly united by faith. That's why. He does it for the sake of Christ who pleased his father in every way and who is even now interceding for you, pleading the pleasing merits of his life on your behalf. And listen, friend, he's not doing that. Christ isn't doing that to a reluctant father, but to an eager father. An eager father who sent his son to live for you, to die for you, to rise from the grave for you, so that his mighty promise to work all things together for good in your life wouldn't rest on the fleeting goodness of men, but on the eternal goodness of God. That's what's going on. So Isaac, fear not. Christian, fear not. Isaac failed like Abraham failed. You will fail like Isaac failed. But the God who turned Abimelech and his cohort from enemies into allies later in the chapter is in the same business today. Doing what? Protecting his covenant promises and using evil for good for the sake of all who are found in Jesus Christ. And after Abimelech makes a surprising non-aggression pact with Isaac, which we have little reason to believe was 
entirely authentic or genuine. (laughs) Or from his heart, Isaac's servants conclude with the good news, Isaac, we've found another well. God's protected his covenant promise. Friend, if you would close your eyes wherever you are, and Kevin, if the band would join me, I want you to listen to Numbers 23, 19. As we think about the God who remembers and keeps and protects his promises. This is what the Lord says through the mouth of Balaam. God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Behold, I received a command to bless He has blessed. I cannot revoke it. Friend, if you are still going down to Egypt, if you are not letting Jesus call all the shots in your life, not following him, then you have right now every reason to be very afraid. Because the promise God will inevitably keep toward you if you do not repent is judgment. But friend, if right now you are willing to turn and repent of your sin, And in the face of all your fears about what you've done in the past and what could come your way in the future, run to Jesus Christ and place all your confidence in him for the forgiveness of your sins. Jesus Christ will keep you. He will remember his covenant promises to you. He will keep his covenant promises to you. He will protect his covenant promises for all who are found in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God who does what you say you will do. Strengthen our faith to trust you no matter what's going on.